This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. Eric Berry. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Greg Kushto. Greg, do you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Do you want to give us just a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Greg Hushto, the Vice President of Sales Engineering and Security at Force 3, and I've been specialized on information security for about 20, 25 years, back when we really started caring about security in the computer world. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, we have you on today to talk about thwarting insider threats. Do you want to kind of give us just a brief overview of what that entails? Sure. So insider threats really can be looked at two ways. Uh, the traditional insider threat that everyone thinks of it is uh, a rogue employee who's dissatisfied or has been approached or bribed by somebody else and kind of sneaking around cubes and stealing information. And that's certainly something that does exist and something we need to be careful of. Uh, but also, uh, insider threat can reference a couple different situations beyond that people usually don't think of. And those include things such as just not even malicious, but unaware intent. You know, for example, leaving a door open is just as critical in physical security as leaving, you know, code unfinished or websites unsecure in information security. It could also be something as simple as seeding. You know, there's a lot of effective attacks that take advantage of people who want to do the right thing or trying to do the right thing. For example, clicking on links they may get from outside who they think is reliable resource to anything from picking up free, quote unquote, free USB drives that are sitting in a parking lot or even given out by unscrupulous people at conferences. So insider threat is really any attack or any threat that comes from inside an organization that is totally unexpected. Gotcha. Now we're, we're coders. So is, is this our job or is this somebody else's job? Well, honestly, it's really everyone's job. Um, you know, I, I like to look at it as a team approach. There's different people across the team and the IT organization. Um, at the end of the day, users need to use an application to get their job done. The application requires somebody to create it. It requires the software to sustain the application. And then the hardware to run that software, to run that application, and then the networking piece to tie all of it together with everyone inside the company and everyone across the world. So it's really everyone's part to be a part of information security and especially insider threat. So you've been doing this for a long time. How did you get started? So I actually got started a very long time ago. Help desk was my first job, helping people log in, use the computer correctly, you know, figure out how to do things in Microsoft Office or even Lotus very, very long time ago. So I started from there, grew more into the server side, uh, figuring out what servers we needed in an organization, started picking up some networking skills, and then honestly, ended up with a situation where we had uh, malicious activity uh, in a place I used to work at. And I started investigating it and then uh, turned into my whole career. So it's funny, it's not, not quite as exciting as The Cuckoo's Egg, which is an amazing book. I really recommend everyone read very easy read from a long time ago who from somebody who was a uh, uh, application developer actually an astronomer who was creating applications to measure and figure out where stars are and turned into uh, really uh, information security expert from following that same trail so 
that's kind of how the same path I went down, although nowhere near as exciting as the book. <laughs> well, I have a lot yeah. of I have a lot of students that I that I work with, and that one of the questions that I routinely get is, you know, how do I get started in 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 this kind of this line of work? So, you know, it, briefly, since since you since you or since you're at a director level right now, you know, what what advice would you give people who are looking to sort of break into this particular area of IT? Yeah, the recommendation I give people. Uh, when they ask me about how to get into security, is really figuring out where they are now. It, from my point of view, security is something that's almost an advanced level uh, of a IT discipline that already exists. So you can't really just start from nothing and then become a security expert. In order to be a security expert, you really need to understand the ins and outs of a different IT topic, whether it's coding, whether it's networking or infrastructure. So the first thing I'd recommend everybody do is figure out what, what are they doing now? Are they an expert in that? How do they get better at that? And then once you start to get better at that, you can start looking at other disciplines. As I said before, security is really something that covers every gamut of, every, of an organization, of an IT infrastructure. So you really need to understand how all of these things work together to really be able to figure out how to secure them. Once you've done that, you know, that, that's critical to really take it to the next level of security. And, but just from a basic user level of security, it's really around educating yourself around what your information is, why you want to protect it, and then why you would do that on behalf of you or company. Now, the funny thing is I used to, uh, I've given security talks for a long time, and I used to spend 10 to 15 minutes trying to just scare everyone about security and why it was really important and why people should pay attention. And sadly, these days, I don't have to do that. We're all aware of why security is so important. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, I never need to pay for credit monitoring because like clockwork, every 12 to 24 months, I get a notice from somebody that they were hacked and I get free credit monitoring. And, you know, people get their email locked down. They see things happen at work. It's all over the news. So that side of security was really around educating yourself around why it's important, what you can do to protect what your your own environment, your your own personal information, and then applying that to what you do, whether again, whether you're coding or building infrastructure or connecting networks. Yeah, and so as far as just insider threats go, you know, there's a lot of different reasons or why something like that can happen. And the first thing that popped into my mind was making a statement. So sometimes you have a employee who really likes what they do for the company or business and they come across something that they are like, we have to expose this. So the first person that comes to my mind is Edward Snowden. So essentially, you know, he was a whistleblower, but that's also like an insider threat from a contractor. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, I know insider threats to some degree are bad, but then on the other hand, you know, he's kind of doing justice by letting the people know that, hey, this company's or this government's doing this. Sure. So... There's really two two points there. One's the political point. To be honest, you know that's really a, a touchy subject that could go in a, a matter of different ways. And I would say that you know people really need to use their own judgment and figure out what's important, what's not important. Things we we don't know is did he try to talk to anybody else to, about what he thought was going on? Did he try to escalate that issue? And and what steps did he take? Do we know? Um, whether he's working with other people or whether he just saw this and kind of threw it out there and figured it out. So without any more of that information, that part of it's definitely hard to address. Uh, the second piece of it is really just insider threat. And, and to me, this is really where, you know, this is kind of, especially these days, the stereotypical uh, insider threat incident, right? Where you have a lone wolf who's motivated by something uh, who's able to bypass security controls and then really be able to do whatever they want with that personal information. To me, it's a classic example of having, you know, no checks and balances with inside your environment. You know, as an administrator, you know, without other people needing to give him the appropriate access, you know, he basically had root access everywhere. He's able to do whatever he wants. And nobody was really looking at the logs until months later, and they looked at the logs, and it was all over the place. And to me, that's why insider threat is critical. Whether you believe in what he was doing or not, we can all agree that probably wasn't the best way to handle that situation. So how do you proactively then prevent something like this? You know, 
yeah, all the politics aside, you know, let's just say some person in the company, you know, gaining access to stuff that they either shouldn't have access to or making sure if they do have access that that access is only being used for the things you want it to. Yeah, it really comes down to three different things. Uh, the first is checks and balances, right? It's needing the approval of other people to create an operation. So, you know, for if you're familiar with uh, cryptographic uh, phrases, it's M of N, right? You've got, you want a situation where if somebody needs to do an action, you need more than just that person to be able to approve it. There's a lot of different ways you can code that in software. There's a lot of different products that you can add on inside of your environment to add that capability. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that there's multiple people involved with getting access or creating access or figuring out who has access to what. Uh, the second piece of that would be auditing and accountability. You know, we spend a lot of time, computers and applications spend a lot of time creating a lot of logs that nobody really does anything with. So making sure that you've got some kind of robust um, you know, event methodology where you are taking a sample of logs or reviewing logs or creating a methodology to figure out which logs are critical versus not and really looking through them and being proactive, very important. And then finally, it's really about looking at how you set up a system, not just from user intent, uh, but but really thinking about what inputs, what are all the possible outcomes that can happen and how do I protect against them? And I mean this for, for all of us in every aspect of IT, the vast majority of the time, we are creating something, an environment, an application, a network, whatever it is, and we're thinking of in the mindset of I'm a person who's going to use this, how am I going to use this? Very rarely do we step back and say, okay, well, here's crazy things that I'm not expecting you know, how can I make sure that if something bad happens or if something weird happens, I know how to exit gracefully or I know how to ignore that error or I know how to alert somebody that something's wrong. So creating an environment like that where you've got both positive and negative effects, you're making sure people are doing the right thing and you've constructed the environment in such a way that if the right thing is not occurring, either depending on your level of risk, it's stopped immediately or somebody's alerted immediately or whatever action you want to take is really important. So being able to tie all of those together is really the best way to stop insider threat. It's really about sitting down and thinking about not only you know what, what are good people, quote unquote, good people, good users going to do, but what could bad or honestly incompetent users do and how do I correct their bad input? Yeah, and you know, from my DevOps days, whenever I would configure or provision a server, you know, I wouldn't run the web service or the application server as uh, the root user. I would always create a separate user that had much more restricted privileges. You know, I guess the uh, principle of least privilege, and so that's how I would set up a environment. And I guess that extends out to the real world with people, not giving everyone full access to everything, uh, but locking it down to where developers of a product, they don't have access to the production server to tinker around or mess with things, unless if it's like a supervised privilege, something like that. You know, a locked door keeps a honest man honest. Exactly. And one of, one of my first bosses at, uh, in one of my first security jobs used to say that Temporary solutions make permanent problems, right? And that's that's the exact same thing. If you're just taking a shortcut to figure out how to get something to work or spinning something from dev to prod and, oh, don't worry, I'll go back and fix this. We all know that the majority of time you never go back and fix that. And it doesn't. It's just, right, we're all working. We've all got a lot of things to do and it's working and you forget about it. You're on to the next problem. That's how humans work. So making okay. sure that you've got a methodology to do things correctly and you're checking to make sure that methodology is followed repeatedly is really the only way to, to be sure that you're doing things correctly and you're not leaving holes like this. Uh, I don't have an exact stat, but uh, I think Gartner released something where you know human error was, I forget exactly what it was, 70, 80% of computer issues were caused by human error. And I think that's very true. And again, the majority of the time, the, the errors that happen, even if it's a malicious person using those errors, those errors weren't malicious. It was just somebody with not enough time to do the right thing or somebody trying to get a project done on time or trying to cut corners to save a couple of bucks here or there. So 
really being able to sit down and not give yourself that easy crutch of a temporary solution eliminates a ton of security issues. Right. You're making you're making a really important distinction here because a lot of people think about insider threats as people trying to be malicious. But you're, you're identifying situations where, like, you know, accidents can happen. And how do you how do you defend yourself from accidents? Right. That's correct. Insider threat covers that full gamut of not only the Edward Snowdens, but people who accidentally kick over the power cord and, you know, power down the whole server infrastructure <laughs> for the company. Right. So no matter at the end of the day, the intent while it's interesting to know and just figure out how to protect against it and make sure that doesn't happen again, at the end of the day, the threat is the threat. Something bad has happened. Uh, you know, if if my server infrastructure goes down and my my boss comes in and I say, oh, sorry, one of one of my people accidentally powered it down, it, it's not like, oh, don't worry about it. That's fine. It's like, what? How could this possibly happen? So it, the goal to insider threat and really figuring out how to protect against it holistically is considering not just the malicious people, but the people who don't know what they're doing or who accidentally do the wrong thing. So when we hear about these, when we hear about these junior developers who accidentally delete the production database, you know, you're, you're really saying that that's, that's not just a, that's, that's a failure at the security level, not just a failure at the the individual team level. Right. I love your assumption yeah. that it's junior developers that make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, but that's the ones we see, right? We see those on, we see those, we see those a lot. I've seen, I've seen at least three of those this year alone, you know, in this last oh, yeah. 12 months or so. So I just lost my job because I deleted a production database. Like, and my first thinking is, well, who, who gave you the keys to be able to do that? Right. Yes. No, that's I a agree. Great example of why you, the, everyone is involved. Yes. Junior people shouldn't delete production things, but on the other hand, they're junior people. Why do junior people have the ability to log into production base and then delete it? It's it's mind boggling. And yeah, you know, replacing that person with a different junior developer may temporarily fix the issue. Again, temporary solution. You've replaced somebody who did something accidentally, but permanently you've not solved that problem. You're still relying on people fresh out of school or, you know, fresh out of learning how to code to do the right thing. It's not that they didn't want to do the right thing. I'm sure the vast majority of the time, as soon as they delete it, they probably sat there and tried not to cry, right? So <laughs> it's really about figuring out how do we help people help themselves? And and, one, and if we can cover, trust me, if we can cover getting in front of people, you know, making accidents and doing things they shouldn't be able to, honestly, the malicious people all of that same work is really going to stop all the malicious activity as well. Yeah. In our company, I think that we call insider threat prevention red tape. And, you know, it's there for a reason. <laughs> yeah, agreed. It's one of those things, and especially security. I, you know, I'm a eat your vegetables guy. It's, it's, uh, it's, no, it's not always a fun thing to do. And security used to be about what I used to call the no police, right? They came to us and we'd pull out our badge and say, nope, you can't do that. Well, that time is past. It's over. You know, everyone knows how computers work. The business is involved on in how computers work, how they want their applications to run. And we've proven time and time again that when you tell people no, they say, okay, well, I'm going to do this anyway and figure out how to go around you. They don't say, oh, you got me. I won't do it. So really security is about trying to to change that. I mean, there's always going to be an element of red tape and saying no, but I like to call it no, but no, you can't do that. But here's a way that we can do that. No, you can't do this, but here's a different solution that'll give you what you want while maintaining some semblance of security. So it's really important for security professionals, especially when working with coders who I'll be honest, most security professionals do not usually come from a coding background. So you guys can really do whatever you want. I mean, we're relying on you a lot of the time to, to follow correct security procedures and involve us when you need to. It's really about helping you all figure out, you know, basically how to be, where's your security friends? Like you want to come to us, we want to sit down and figure out how to do something, not just tell you, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Because nobody, that's never effective. Yeah. So, I, you, go ahead. Go ahead. My question is, is there then an easy sort of uh, list of things or a methodology for finding these kinds of threats so that we can solve them before they become an issue? Or is this just something you kind of learn the hard way over and over? 
Well, I think the methodology really goes back to this this is nothing special. It's really just taking the same security mindset that that we've had basically forever and actually doing it, right? There's no, you know, I tell people all the time, I mean, the amount of security tools and appliances and applications out there is insane. I mean, you look at something like Metasploit. I mean, I remember, you know, when we were writing scripts trying to figure out how to do buzzing and now you just log into Metasploit and you tell it to own a box and you go get a coffee and come back and there you are. So, you know, even though security keeps changing and the tools and the applications and coding languages and everything are different, the methodology is still the same. And the methodology is CIA, confidentiality, integrity, availability. If you design your environment, your network, your applications, your databases with those three things in mind, how do I make sure that only the correct people have access to see whatever the data I want them to see? How do I make sure that only the correct people are able uh, to change that data so people who can't change the data, the system, the application, unless they're allowed to? And how do I make sure that everyone who needs to use this application is able to do that even with these security controls in place? If you follow those three things, you're going to always come out with a very secure environment, application, system, whatever you want to call it. So 10 years ago, we were concerned about people coming in with USB disks and, uh, you know, writable CDs and pulling data out of an organization. Now the average tech worker comes in with a, you know, maybe with a backpack, uh, with a smartphone in it and a smartwatch and some other uh, wearable technology and uh, a tablet maybe in their, you know, in that bag. And how, how has that changed how you look at in, uh, threats from the inside? Yeah, I think... I think it's reinforced the necessity of having the appropriate controls in place because there was a lot of uh, cheating for lack of a better word before, right? You, you made sure that, you know, if somebody walked in and they weren't carrying any of those equipment or they don't have a laptop, well then what are they going to do? You know that they can't magically transfer all of that data. If they're going to burn a CD of, you know, 500 megs you'll you'll catch them in the 30 minutes it takes to burn a cd right you know we used to that was kind of like a free level of security that people overly relied on and you're right the amount of information that's i mean my my phone is 200 200 plus gigs of storage on my phone which is mind-blowing i mean there's almost nothing in the world that you couldn't fit in into 200 gigs at least a, a good portion or the critical portion of whatever sister data set you're looking for. So again, it really goes back to being able to enforce those controls appropriately. And that comes down to things like, you know, administrator root access on a laptop or on an endpoint. You know, just because somebody's allowed to log in and figure out, you know, and manipulate data and create an application doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to allow them to transfer that data out of that environment. It doesn't necessarily mean that even though you're allowed to copy data down to your personal device, that your personal device isn't allowed to do something else with that data. So it's really about figuring out how people are using the data and locking down those other ways. And locking down and figuring out how people are using it are critical. Again, going back to to the no police, if you just tell people, well, you can't use your phone to look at stuff, people are going to figure out how to use their phone to look at something. So you want to say, well, what are you using your phone for? Oh, it's because you are doing, uh, you know, overnight stuff on the weekend where you're testing stuff in dev and you want to make sure it's working correctly. Well, let's figure out how we can secure your phone. Maybe we give you a special, you know, maybe the company gives you a phone that only has access to this. Maybe we can spin up a VM on your phone where you can get the appropriate access you need to. And when you're enabling people to do the job the way they want to do the job, obviously within reason, you're going to lower the amount of security involved with with those types of threats. Because people, again, most people aren't trying to do something malicious. They're just trying to do their jobs the easiest way possible. And we need to figure out how to securely enable them to do that. Well, I think not only all of that, but then you also have the third party uh, companies coming in uh, with the Apple laptops or, you know, the Apple OS and the root, the uh, passwordless root that, you know, was exposed a few months ago. So, you know, just keeping your laptop uh 
quote, secure with a screen locked or it encrypted almost just isn't good enough anymore because you're relying on Apple to have a solid operating system without any vulnerabilities. And then the, the choice of hardware that they use with the Intel meta, uh, the meltdown uh, and all that junk going on. Now it's like, you know, all your infrastructure and your computers that people are using have this potential leak. So, I mean, it's it's coming from the inside, too, which is crazy. That's exactly correct. And that's why it's so important to make sure you're designing multiple strategies or multiple areas within your security strategy inside your environment. That You just can't rely on one specific aspect of security. For example, as you mentioned, you know, making sure the laptop's secure. Okay, well, that's great. But when a vendor has an issue that nobody had any idea that Intel was going to have a chip problem, that's going to be vulnerable to everything across the world, right? So you can't secure that. The way you you can't you can't just say, oh, that's never going to happen. You've got to have multiple layers of security within any environment. So in that example, you know, if you're you need to make sure your internal environment's tracking the data, where does the data sit? Who's using it? Is it alerting somebody if that's being used incorrectly or copied to a laptop where it shouldn't be? That laptop, do you have encryption on that laptop? So even if somebody's able to get into it, is it an encrypted file that you need an application to unencrypt to open that code to start looking at it? So again, it's really about multiple layers of security. The defense in depth approach is the only thing that that we know that works all the time, and that's multiple layers of security across multiple pieces of your environment, keeping that CIA confidentiality, integrity, availability in mind. Interview Cake makes coding interviews a piece of cake. Here's the problem with most coding interview practice. You work on a problem, bang your head against the wall, give up, and look up the answer. And then you're like, what? How do you even come up with something like that? That's why Interview Cake teaches you step-by-step how to come up with clever algorithms. They break it down into a simple set of patterns that can be applied to any problem. To learn more, check out interviewcake.com slash rubyrogues. Ruby Rogues listeners get 20% off Interview Cake's full online coding interview prep course. To sign up today, go to interviewcake.com slash rubyrogues. So one thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, we're talking about all these preventative measures, right? And you're talking about having an audit trail and things like that. But what what do you do if you actually have a breach? I mean, what what's the right answer there? Do you, do you have some kind of procedure in place for that kind of a thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So honestly, the answer to that goes to risk. And, and you really need to figure out what what is inside your environment and how you want to protect it. And honestly, what's inside your environment is a question that most people cannot answer. I mean, the vast majority of people cannot answer. Uh, so that's the first step. What's inside my environment? How does all this stuff work together? You know, it's it's amazing. In IT, we, we're so good at, at kind of getting everything to work and having everything designed to work together, to work appropriately, that, that a lot of times people just kind of stand things up and it works and they're like, oh, it works. And you kind of go on to the next thing without sitting down to figure out why is this working? Oh, it's because on the firewall, I was troubleshooting and I allowed any, any, and hey, now I don't have any issues anymore. Well, that's great. You've, you've, you've solved it. Well, you've got a solution for the problem. But the, the issue is you completely, you may as well take that firewall down because it's not doing anything anymore if you're allowing any, any. So figuring out uh, what's inside your environment and then how badly you want to protect it, it is really the way around that. And, and to me, that second piece, you know, a lot of people have made progress on figuring out what's their environment, figuring out what needs to be secured or not. But there's still a lot of work to be done around how do we want to secure it or what's the risk level of this. If you're talking information in your company that is critical, that if your competitor found out this information, you would go out of business, obviously that's when you want to you know, enable your environment to hopefully proactively protect that information. What I mean by that is really around automation. Uh, in the security space, you, know, you may have something where if you see a certain type of alert, uh, involving a certain system, then you can have your firewall just deny traffic to that part of your system. Or, you know, with a uh, VLAN or separate network inside your data center, if it's that critical, you know, you can turn off access to that where you need to go in, 
basically plug in a cable and re-enable that. Now, obviously, the vast majority of data inside an information is not that critical where you want it to shut down closed where nobody can access it. But being able to sit down and figure out what data is that critical versus what data is not that critical. You know, if somebody's browsing the internet at lunchtime while they're eating a sandwich and listening to free music and then all of a sudden, you know, something starts spamming, sending spam to their computer, you probably don't need to shut down the whole company to, to alert against that, right? You really, maybe you just <laughs> want to deactivate that account or send a message or, you know, an IT help desk person to them and say, hey, obviously we see some spam coming out of this computer, let's shut it down. So it's really about figuring out what's inside your environment, how badly you want to protect it, and then putting those control, those appropriate controls in place to figure out how to do that. And that's a lot of time where people fail, where they say, well, if there's any security incidents, I'm going to do the highest level of security. And then all you do is you make people angry because it's the guy's, you know, coding at lunch, the entire company shuts down and everybody's mad at him for a week, right? So you want to avoid things like that. You want to take the appropriate action for the appropriate threat. Yeah, because a lot of times, you know, it, it's a give and take because you could do something like that, shut everything down. But is that too drastic of, a, drastic of a measure? You know, for example, like with my house, you know, my house is, quote, secure enough because I lock my windows and I lock my doors. You know, I could go a step further and put bars on all my windows, but, you know, that costs money. That's, you know, not aesthetically pleasing. And it becomes too much of a hassle if I want to just crack open a window or something. So I think a lot of it comes down to the risk, the education of the people um, to do make smart decisions and what to look out for. You know, don't click on this link in the email and a lot of that stuff. I agree. That's a great analogy. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, the, the money you make, hopefully, is at a bank. Right? Hopefully there, there's a vault somewhere. There's a lot of security going on. You know, you don't want to hire a guard to stand in front of your house and decide whether you're in, you're allowed in or not. You don't want to spend a million dollars hollowing out a vault and putting concrete everywhere and metal and the giant vault door that you see in movies. You don't need that level of security for your house unless, of course, you got a whole truckload of diamonds or something awesome in there, right? So it's really about assigning those appropriate security controls really based on the risk. And until companies start doing that effectively, there's always going to be this, you know, basically rush to and collapse from the most recent security incident. You know, oh no, something bad happened. All right, we're doing, everybody's doing security all the time for two weeks until we get tired of it or three weeks until an executive complains that they can't get email on their iPad or whatever. You know, going from security incident, relaxing, going back to security incident is only going to give people whiplash and make people slowly start tuning out security. So it's really about figuring out what your risk posture is and then addressing that appropriately is, is really the only effective way to make sure that happens. So one other question that I have, um, one book I read a number of years ago was Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick. And a lot of the, in a lot of those cases, you know, he, he was an intruder. He wasn't an insider, but he would come in and, you know, you would talk about uh, phishing emails or they would call in and impersonate one person in the company to, gain access to another person in the company who could eventually give them the information they needed to get into the system. Um, how much of that is, falls under insider threats versus just educating people to not allow access to external people? To, to me, that 100% is the perfect example of insider threat. And Kevin Mitnick proved that the weakest part of any system is the human beings attached to that system. And we're never going to be able to train people to act as if they're security robots. And honestly, even though I'm a security guy and I love security, I don't know if I want to live in a world where everybody acts as 100% efficient security robots. You know, this just human nature. We're, we're a tribe. We hopefully most of the time work together, notwithstanding politics recently. But figuring out how to take advantage of people being nice and wanting to help that you're never going to solve that. And and beating people and going through user training, I think user training is important for people to be aware of what's going on and how to protect themselves. But again, you cannot 100% rely on people 
to do the right thing all the time. And again, it has nothing to do with whether they're malicious or not. You know, people, somebody is always going to be able to call and sweet talk somebody into doing the wrong thing even because they think they're helping somebody out. So that's really where it goes back to having those multiple layers of security controls and ensuring that even though somebody is trying to, you know, help somebody out, even though it's malicious activity, there's somebody behind them saying, wait a minute, I know you're trying to let them in because they forgot their badge, but I don't know who they are. And let's sit down and figure out who the right person is. I mean, again, we don't want to eliminate how people act because it's, it's just an impossible task. So you've really got to design your controls around what people are just going to naturally do. Yep. And, you know, I think companies can uh, go to some degree to, you know, carve out just the accidental mistakes that people make. You know, for example, like my parents, I know my mom and dad are going to click on any link that comes into their inbox. You know, it doesn't matter who it's from. They're just like, oh, I have a PDF with a bill due. OK, I'll, I'll open that up. So I set up, you know, their accounts on Gmail back when they had the private or the free domain. So they still have their own domain name, but, you know, it's all hosted through Gmail. And Gmail does a fantastic job of filtering out a lot of that spam junk. So, you know, for them, you know, I say, hey, still use caution. But for the most part, if something gets into your inbox, click on it. It's, you know, but use reasonable uh, judgment. But it's something that I don't really have to worry about anymore. Exactly. And that's how we need to make sure we're designing our environment securely because people are always going to click on a link. I tell people, I guarantee that I can send an email with an attachment that somebody on your company is going to click on. And people are like, no, we do all this user training. No, they'll know. It's very easy. And it has nothing to do with computers. All it has to do with is the name of the file. And the name of the file is executive salaries. I guarantee if I send a file to any company that says executive salaries, somebody is clicking it because there's always somebody that's like, I got to know what these people are making. There's always, it's human nature. There's going to be one person and guess what? It's never just one person and it has nothing, nothing to do with security. It has nothing to do with coding and nothing to do with cool next level ninja type stuff where you're hacking into systems. It's literally executive salaries. That's it. You're into any, any system. So you've got to be able to design around relying on people being a hundred percent effective because we're just not, we're human beings. Yeah. One other thing that I found that helps mitigate some of this is just having written procedures for a lot of this stuff. And then as much as possible, you know, we're coders, you know, writing a program, writing a script that will, you know, run through the procedures. Um, cause as much as you can, if you can automate or make it at least easy for people to know exactly how something is done, then they tend not to as much deviate. Sometimes they do, but generally I find that people generally won't deviate into these other areas that cause the issues in the first place. And then if there's something that, you know, goes outside of these general procedures for the common stuff, you know, then they can start having the conversations about how they need to get those done. Yeah, I agree. And the three high-level recommendations I give specifically around coding, and again, I am not a coding expert, so these are going to be very, very high-level. Uh, one, commenting or clear code, whatever you want to call it. You want to make sure that no matter how you figure out how you're coding something, you get it to work, you've got to go back and either say, here's the magic I employed to make this happen or rewrite it to make it clear. You've got to be able to make sure that somebody else can look at that code. Second piece, peer review, you've got to have somebody else look at it. Just to, you know, again, all of us, we get locked in a tunnel and you're trying to get stuff done. You figure it out the easiest way to get it done. You've got to make sure somebody else looks at it. And, and I know we, we all do that. I'm saying we like, again, I'm, I'm not much of a coder, but, you know, I know we all, hey, something works. I'm out of here versus, you know, something doesn't work. Let me reach out for help. Even when things work, sometimes you really want to make sure you're sending it. Hey, I got this to work. Does this make sense? Do you think this is the best way to do it? How else could I do that? I think it's critical. And then finally, just expect the unexpected. We all sit down, again, figure out how to design a system to work for the right person who's supposed to use that system. But there's going to be people who aren't supposed to use that system. And there's going to be people who are supposed to use it, but honestly don't know how to use it. You've got to make sure you're coding around that and figuring out what do I do if I get bad input? How do I make sure that nothing bad happens. So that's really the, the three high-level pieces I look at for secure coding. 
If you're doing those things, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, and don't copy and paste anywhere except from Stack Overflow. If it's yeah, not on Stack exactly. Overflow to copy and paste, then don't use the code. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so one other thing you know, I'm wondering about here is, you know, it, it seems like the landscape of this is changing every day and that, you know, what what are kind of good general practices today, you know, the, the general principles hold, but the, the practices are going to change, right? You know, you mentioned uh, USB drives and CD, you know, blank CDs, you know, and now it's, you know, I'm just going to copy it over to my phone over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Um, so how do you stay on top of what these threats are? So it's it's really a couple different ways. One is just making sure you're staying in touch with uh, what's going on in the, in the world. And I don't know a better way to frame that, but, you know, all of the constant keeping up to date we do with different technologies, coding languages, etc. You've got to do the same thing with security. You need to make sure you're, you know, I, I can give a couple examples of podcasts or websites that you want to check, but you just got to make sure you're kind of staying abreast of what's going on out there and what the newest threats are. Uh, because at the end of the day, the biggest problem around security is that it's not a concrete problem. Uh, it's not a discrete problem that we can solve. It's it's another person. You know, at the end of the day, when you're looking at security issues and malicious people, it's another human being who is using everything that makes us awesome as humans, which is quickly problem solving our way to a solution. And you've got to solve that. And you're right, that that's gonna change day by day, hour by hour, constantly as you get new people, new technologies, new thoughts new ways to hack into systems. So you just need to make sure that not only are you doing the basics, but you're really just staying abreast of all the different security uh, news, topics, situations that are going on out there. And then reviewing what you're doing and making sure you're incorporating that information. Because just like IT, IT security is constantly changing. And if you're not moving, you're dead. Dave, it sounded like you were going to bring something in. Oh, I was going to say about, you know, if you are doing the coding and stuff, um, do your due diligence too and run a static code analysis tool for whatever language that you have. You know, for Ruby, you can run Breakman on your application to check to see if you are exposing threats. So, and if you leave those threats in there, then you are basically your own insider threat. Yeah. And again, going back to peer review, you know, phoning a friend and offering 20 bucks a beer. You know, so anything, hey, I bet you, you know, a six pack, you can't get this, you can't break my code. People will get motivated and they'll figure out the best way to break your code. So again, going back to peer review and having other people look at it and using the tools out there to automate some of that code review and response is a great thing to make sure that you're incorporating. So a funny story of an insider threat, not in my current employer, but something that I've seen in the past is, you know, some developer guys were trying to see how far their production system, you know, how much traffic can it sustain? You know, do they need to add more servers? Do they have too many based on their, you know, ideal targets that they're wanting to hit? So they started running some uh, JMeter tests and some load balancer tests to see, uh, you know, how much traffic it could sustain. And it kept taking down the site. So even though it was for good intentions and, you know, uh, maybe the wrong environment that they were testing on, but they kept taking down their own production site. So I think using um, <laughs> uh, good decisions on having a pre-production environment that's very similar to your production environment to drill down and do all of the, those kind of tests, you know, can also help prevent insider accidental threats. No, I totally agree. And I honestly think to me, that's the next frontier in security is that it, almost, like we were talking about with uh, CDs and USB versus phone. I mean, containerization and cloud is, is the next step in IT and IT security, because, you know, if you're looking at your own environment, you, you've still got some physical control you're relying on to make sure you're securing that environment. When literally everything's on AWS or wherever it is out in the cloud, you have no control over that whatsoever. That's when you need to, that's really the next focus for computer security. Because right now what we do most of the time is we, we replicate what we've done. We set up the same physical environment and we virtually recreate that inside a container and to me, that's the next frontier is now that we don't have physical control, now that we don't have to replicate 
these physical boxes, which, by the way, were only different boxes because the computer wasn't big enough to do all the stuff itself. How do we sit down and secure that? And I think that is where a lot of cool new concepts and not only information infrastructure security, but in code analysis and security are really going to come the next couple of years. I was actually going to ask about that. You know, you mentioned AWS, but a lot of folks actually do Docker and, and things like that. Yep. And, um, you know, and so they essentially replicate the same server across their entire infrastructure. And so, you know, yeah, you do audits, you figure out that there's another way in. And then, you know, hopefully you're using some tool like Chef or something to manage updates to all of those systems. But does does that make us more vulnerable in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, when it's a virtual machine in a cloud, like an AWS or something, you know, there really isn't a physical location for it. They'd have to hack the, the hypervisor of the machine that it's running on and then hack your VM. Um, but at the same time, you know, that, that is a vector of attack. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, you wind up replicating your mistakes, you know, on a level that we didn't really have the option of replicating them on 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's just it's uh, it's scripting, right? If if you write a great script, it solves a lot of your challenges. And if you make a mistake in a script that you didn't foresee, you've got a a lot of issues on your hands, probably. So that's again, it's a good point. It comes down to ensuring that not only is that container as secure as you can possibly make it, so that when you replicate it, you're replicating something without errors, but taking into account the fact that you're never going to be able to be a hundred percent sure. Just because you're relying on other people, other software, other companies that are going to have errors. So having that second process in place where you're able to update all of these different containers, make sure whatever security issue is happening, you can go and fix quickly throughout your environment is going to be critical because, yeah, you're going to have a situation where, uh-oh, this vendor released this vulnerability and now Literally all everything in my environment ran on that and I've got to do something about it. So proactively making sure you can address issues like that are very critical. And again, that auditing and accountability that goes into creating that first container or VM or whatever you want to use, making sure that's secure as possible so that when you do replicate it, you're not using a, you know, a bad lock that any key will open and putting it throughout your entire building. So yeah, that's critical. So I haven't been... I haven't been too active in this conversation because uh, when it comes to security and everything, I, my eyes tend to glaze. No offense, my eyes tend to glaze over a little bit because I've I I, I relate it somewhat to um, to the DevOps as well, where it's something that I probably should be aware of, but I haven't really been aware of it because I know others are more worried about it than I am. For those people like me who were who are maybe probably not the best example of how you should be are there cheat sheets or checklists or something that we can go by that would allow us to say okay i might not need to keep this at top of mind person or maybe that's a bad way of saying it i don't keep this at top of mind personally but i can follow a list to make sure that there are things that i'm doing correctly to prevent these type of uh, catastrophes yeah there's a couple different things you could do uh first of all uh i'm familiar with SANS secure coding where uh, they'll give you a checklist and basically when you're coding, take these precepts in mind to make sure you're coding a system securely. There's a lot of those out of there. I'm familiar with SANS, but basically get one of those checklists, put it next to your desk, your office, wherever you're sitting, and just make sure you're looking at that every day. Hey, let me just look at this, make sure I'm thinking the right way and making sure I'm keeping this uh, as secure as possible. It's, it's a very easy read. Uh, even I understood it, again, is not a crazy in-depth coder. So that's something I definitely recommend. And then something else from SANS, I don't work with SANS, I'm not affiliated with SANS, but they do a lot of really great things for the security community. Uh, they have a daily podcast from their Internet Storm Center. So basically, their NOC, their SOC that looks out for security events and keeps people aware, they have a daily five-minute podcast. It's literally five minutes. If you listen to that every day, you will be just as informed as almost every security professional out there because it's, it's literally, again, it's five minutes. It's, hey, here's two or three updates. So not only are you aware of uh, the different security issues that are occurring out in the wild, but we'll also get you thinking about, hey, how do I make sure whatever I'm working on doesn't hit those security issues? Because it'll say things, you know, oh, Microsoft 
Patch Tuesday is coming out, and here's some of the code flaws that they're fixing. And you can say, oh, I got to make sure I'm taking in that into account. You know, the new version of Adobe is coming out, and here's what they're, you know, they're fixing from the latest PDF exploits. And you can say, okay, that's great. Let me make sure I'm doing that. And again, it's five minutes. You know, even if you're commuting from your bedroom to your home office or, you know, walking the dog or getting the mail, you can you can always make five minutes to listen to something and you'll be incredibly up to date there. So those are really two great ways to make sure you're you're keeping security in mind, but you're not going overboard because overboard never, never works. It's like uh, diets on January 1st. You know, three weeks later, most people aren't on a diet anymore. One other resource that I really like is OWASP. And they, they have some tools that you can run against your apps, too, that will check for common exploits. Yep. Great point. So one other question that I have related to this is, let's say that we get everything nailed down to where, you know, we, we've updated all of our procedures. We, we know how we're looking for the insider threats and preventing some of these issues from cropping up, you know, whether it's the accidental dropping of a database or the, the openings that we can create for external malicious people to come in and, and steal data or cause trouble. Um, how often do we need to revisit this stuff? Yeah, periodically. And again, this goes back to uh, a risk-based decision. It's it's definitely periodically. You know, if you are coding a uh, application that gives public data to anybody that looks for it, maybe review your procedures once a year because it's publicly available data. You know, there's not really a lot of malicious intent that can come from this, and you know, maybe your biggest worries are DDoS or something like that. So maybe once a year is really all, all you need, but you need to make sure you are reviewing it that once a year versus something, you know, again, company critical. If you're if you're selling an application and the code for that application is what makes your entire company run and everybody get paid and keeps you beating out competitors for whatever applications they're designing, maybe you want to look at that once a month or every two weeks. So you want to figure out what that periodic nature is based on that risk, and then you want to make sure you do it religiously. It's, it's again, Again, it's the eat your vegetables approach. It's it's the only way to do it. You know, nobody wants to sit down and review security every two weeks. But hey, if this gets hacked and we lose our source code, then we're all finding other jobs. It's usually pretty motivating. So you just want to make sure that you're you're doing the right thing and that you've got accountability to keep doing the right thing into the future. Uh, Greg, your job is you know taking care of this kind of thing. Um, what, what does a day in the life of Greg look like as far as you know, for us, it's going to kind of be something that we bring up periodically and then handle as issues come up. But for you, where you're thinking about this day in and day out, you know, what, what do you spend most of your time doing? Uh, honestly, I spend most of my time sitting in meetings. I think we probably all do that, right? <laughs> now you're making me want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would say for any good security professional, you really want to divide your time 50-50. Half of the time, you need to be able to have free to combat threats that are going to happen. You need to make sure that you have the time to figure out what threats are out there. Are we protected against them? If something's bad happening, how do I fix it? Who do I need to get involved to fix it? So you've got to, you just have to, again, going back to, to human beings on the other side of all of these bad things happening, whether it's malicious or not, you've got to figure out how you can stay in front of that. And then the second half, the other 50% of that time, is really making sure that you've got the appropriate controls in place and that you're auditing them in a repeatable fashion. So we've designed a system. We've given out this level of user access. When's the last time somebody has reviewed the user access? You know, Do we make sure that when people start or leave the company, is HR notifying the appropriate person to make sure they have the appropriate rights? Uh, you know, Hey, we're transitioning from... Uh, internal to AWS or to some type of container, how do we make sure that's secure? So really, half the time, you, you're going to be facing threats, you're going to be fighting fires, you're going to be making sure that you're able to address any security issues that come up or <laughs> security issues that come up from other vendors. And then the other half of the time is really sitting down and basically doing internal auditing, not the really boring auditing of, oh, let me check this log to that, but high level. Hey, we have a, do we have a procedure for this? When's the last time somebody looked at it? Is that still valid? And how do I make sure I can update this? This is something that everybody's going to do. And also a lot of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I hate meetings. Sorry. Me too. Me too. I, I sit in them a lot and it's always fun. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, let's go ahead and get some picks in. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Um, Brian, do you want to start us off with picks? Well, maybe sure, absolutely. Uh, my first pick is this uh, pretty cool. I guess you could call it a kid's toy if you want, but I'm having a little bit of fun as an adult with it. It's called Bloxels. It's a build-your-own video game kit, um, and it gives you this physical this physical board with these uh, these those little cubes, these little pixel cubes, and you can basically uh, fill the board and basically use the board to make pixel art, and then um, use your tablet to take a picture of it and it uses it to build the game board or the character sprites and things like that uh, so it's, it's kind of fun because you, you instead of using like a pixel art tool to make your characters and, and make your background tiles uh, you can just use this physical board to, to lay things out and then and then import it into the uh, import it into the the game software and uh, it's a little bit little fun to make it's, it's got a few little weird edge cases with it but you know all in all um you know, it's something you can pick up on Amazon for thirty-four dollars. So it's it's uh, definitely worth playing with if you have if you have kids or if you just kind of you know like these kind of educational nerd things uh, like me. Uh, I'm so getting that. That's uh, awesome. I think I saw them at CES. Um, so uh, the uh, the other pick I have is actually some uh, piece of open source software that I wrote. Uh, it's called S3 server and I needed some software. I actually needed something to share some files from an, uh, an S3 bucket, uh, some music files with someone who needed to pick them up for me. And I didn't want to make it world writable, nor did I want to, uh, you know, to give people credentials to this. So I wrote some software that just serves an S3 bucket and puts Google Auth in front of it. And uh, I, since, since, uh, since DigitalOcean released, they released their spaces product. I actually just pushed a, a patch out there to use the same thing with spaces. It's called S3 server and you can find it on, on GitHub and I'll have the link in the show notes for it. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? All right. I have two picks. One is Oxbeam LED headlights. So I don't have great vision and I can't see really good at night when I'm driving. So, um, I got these LED headlights, which are just a plug and play replacement. And they are so much brighter. And after fine-tuning and making sure I'm not blinding oncoming drivers, the visibility on the road is so, so, so much better. So I highly recommend them. And they have a much better life than your standard halogen bulbs and stuff. So they're really awesome. And then the second pick that I have is kind of a novelty thing. Uh, it's Native Fire. It's a NPM package, which allows you to... Uh, it gives you a command line interface tool that you can just point to a URL and it'll package up a Electron app of, uh, I think it also uh, bundles Chromium and it just makes it a quote native application. So it hides the browser bar, the developer tools and all that stuff. So it looks like you have a actual native app. And I think that it could be what Mattermost uses for their desktop apps. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? I've got a couple of picks. Um, the first one is actually the company that I went to work with. Uh, the company's name is called Gitcoin. The website is gitcoin.co. And the whole premise behind it is to create an incentivized uh, bounty system to allow ongoing development or support for your open source projects. So I've been rebuilding CodeSponsor in Python. And 
it's 100% open source. And as I'm doing it, I'm asking for help through these bounties and I'm actually getting people to help. They get paid in Ethereum, which is pretty cool. And then they turn around and they submit PRs and help me build it. But it's it's kind of neat to see that that side grow. Um, the other The other thing that I've been using quite a bit, and I think it's super handy for anybody who is either learning a new language or framework or is um, uh, just essentially needing to tap in. If you're Googling a lot, if you are uh, checking Stack Overflow a lot, there's a couple of, there's an app called CodePilot. Uh, and I think the website is codepilot.ai. But essentially what it is, it's a, it's a, it is a machine learning based a search engine that will search all of your local Git repositories on your computer. It'll search GitHub and it'll search Stack Overflow. But what I found out is that when you do a search on GitHub for, let's say you're looking for a phrase, uh, something that, for example, I'm looking for like celery result backend, which is a Python configuration. I want to see an example of somebody using it. Well, I search on GitHub for that and it returns back, you know, 5,000 results. But what I found out after talking to the creator is that you know, 99% of those results are basically copied code from other examples. So in reality, there's actually only 94 unique results on GitHub for that for that string, which I found fascinating. But they use this this uh, business logic, or not business logic, this machine learning to, to really hammer down and give you only true unique results. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the, the app is absolutely fantastic. I'm using it every day. Awesome. Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. Um, one is, is if you, you've been listening to this episode, I probably sound a little bit different from what I normally sound like, and that's because I'm in Atlanta right now uh, for the NG Atlanta conference. Um, for the, It's an Angular conference. And uh, so real quick, uh, just to fill you all in on equipment that I'm using here, um, I have my Apple AirPods in my ears, uh, and they seem to be working all right. Um, you just hook them up through Bluetooth on your uh, MacBook Pro. It's nice on your uh, um, on your iOS devices because you just uh, put your AirPods in the case and then open it up and hold it near an iOS device and it'll pair with it. Um, it was actually kind of funny because um, I was sitting next to my wife's best friend. She wound up we wound up on the same flight flying back here because she lives in Charlotte and I my connecting flight was in Charlotte. And so I pulled out my AirPods uh, to to pair them with my phone because I'd had them paired with my um, iPad. And they came up on her phone and said, these are not your AirPods, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But anyway, um, I, I'm really liking them for that. And then as far as the microphone goes, I'm using the ATR2100. Um, and I just have it plugged in via USB onto this computer. And I'm just recording this using uh, Ecamm Call Recorder on Skype. So um, anyway, kind of a nice setup there. Uh, another thing that I'm going to pick as far as travel goes is when I booked this hotel room and my flight. I typically fly Delta just because I have Sky Miles, you know, all that stuff. Um, but I was looking to save a little bit of money when I flew, and so I tried a new service called Upside. And so if you go to Upside.com, um, you can actually book your airfare and hotel, and they will work it out so you get a, a good deal on your on your travel. It actually saved me like six or $700 on my travel between hotel and the airline. Um, I did wind up taking a red-eye flight. Um, you know, the flight left at 1, 1 a.m. in Salt Lake City, but... Um, I, I got just a killer deal on all that stuff. And, uh, so I'm not staying in the hotel where the conference is, which is usually kind of a nice thing to do. Um, but instead what wound up happening was, um, I'm in a hotel that's just down the road. So it's about a 15 minute walk. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got a full suite here. I've got a little kitchen in here and stuff, but, uh, anyway, it's been a good deal and they actually give you gift cards for using their service. So, I have like $50 or something in gift cards that I can redeem on Amazon or any other service. Um, so yeah, um, I have a referral code and I will just put it in the show notes because I don't know if reading it off would make help anybody, but I'll make sure it makes it into the show notes. in that way, if you, if you sign up for upside, then I think if you use my referral code, we both get a $50 gift card. So anyway, um, I'll make sure that that's available. Greg, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got uh, two picks. One, just to reiterate, uh, The Cuckoo's Egg, amazing book. It It is old school. As an example, a lot of the book talks about modems and phone banks, so not necessarily technical reference. However, uh, it's a guy who was a programmer, who was a system admin, who 
found something weird one day and basically started to investigate it. And it's a great manual for how do I think about security? What should I be aware of? And, and what's the right thing to do? So just a great book. And then to be honest, I've been telling everybody about the second thing. And I like listening to music while I read, which is weird. I know a lot of people like to just read quietly, but Greta Van Fleet, I I love them. It's basically like Led Zeppelin ran into that time portal and got transported into the future and released a new album. They're amazing. So they're on tour. I don't know if this is an appropriate pick, but I've been listening to them nonstop and I'm evangelizing them to everyone I talk to. So that sounds awesome. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter or GitHub or maybe you have a blog or something somewhere, um, what are the best places for people to kind of keep track of what you're working on these days? Yeah, so if you uh, look at Twitter, I'm on G Kushto. I've got a blog through my company, uh, Force3. So that's force3.com. Force, like a force to be reckoned with, and three, like the number three. Um, that's the three company founders, which is the name. But uh, those two places, the great place to track what I'm doing, where I'm going, where I'm speaking, and love to hear from everybody out there listening. Thoughts and comments, always welcome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming and uh, giving us something to think about on the security front. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.